Loading Brian Sovereign 4.0. Private Agent, Mnemonic Courier. Verifying that all software is DAPS compatible. Programs ready. Loading. Anarchism kernel. Loading. Tech news feeds. Loading. Secret history libraries. Loading. Hedonism theme. Loading. Cryptographic processes. Loading. Science software. Loading. Rationality and self-knowledge systems. Loading. Unimatrix Zero. Loading. Non-killing protocol. Loading. Open source sexuality subroutines. Loading. Triple Black API. Loading. Golden Stallion.RPM. Now ready for Sovereign Jack. Tech journalists, get out your note-taking apps, get out your notepads, whatever you end up using, and start taking the notes, baby, because your show prep is here. Sovereign Tech, the man of tomorrow, Sav Zhu, the libertine-in-chief, the rated-R radio star, is ready to tell you all about the future. I'll call it six months in advance. I'll call it a year in advance. Hell, I'll call it three years in advance. Woo! It's time for another episode. Let's do it. <laughs> and you know, it's ironic because, you know, I don't mean to be patting myself on the back, but it's really true. I, I mean, it's, I, I listen to so many, you know, I listen to a lot of podcasts. Okay. I listen to quite a few podcasts and I hear them now saying things that, holy shit. It's like, yeah, why? Well, if people listen to Sovereign Tech, they would have already known that. So while the rest of the world is still playing catch-up, you and me, me and the Sovereign Tech listeners, we get to enjoy already knowing what's coming, baby. Woo! And as I always say, you know, really, despite any time that I get a little heated up, despite any times that, uh, you know, I lay out perhaps dire assessments, really, I'm an optimist. I, I think the future is going to be fantastic. 
uh, at least for those that want it to be, at least for those that are willing to uh, to really do the work that it takes for the future to be incredible because the technology is there. It's kind of like, what's that William Gibson saying that he's kind of famous for now? Uh, the future's already here. It's just not very evenly distributed. Now, he's, of course, referring to the fact that there's a lot of elitists that have access to stuff uh, that, you know, not everybody else has, but they're already living like it's, I don't know, something out of a science fiction movie and all that. Uh, but. You know, in the same sense that, you know, I would take that phrase and twist it towards, you know, those that want actual freedom in their life might find it possible to get it today, uh, thanks to technology. So anyway, I, I'm, I'm twisting his meaning a little bit, but the, the, the truth is still kind of there. I think that that one can live a, a very free life, all thanks to this technology. But anyway, speaking of a lack of life, and this is really sad, I want to actually dedicate this episode of Sovereign Tech uh, to a real hero of mine who, unfortunately, I didn't know. And you, boy, this pissed me off. I didn't realize this guy died. And he died uh, January 24th of this year, of 2016. And, I, I mean, this is just, it's so funny. And I know, I think maybe it was around that time in January when you had a lot of the, or that time frame, there's a lot of very serious deaths. Of course, Lemmy, uh you know, David Bowie, uh, there's been quite a few Glenn Fry died recently. I mean, just a whole bunch. And so maybe the news cycle didn't think that this fit, but that's a real shame because a guy that really helped bring the future that we're describing into reality was, uh, Marvin Minsky and Marvin Minsky. I mean, wow. Uh, in fact, you know, there's a, there's an old quote by another hero of mine, about <laughs> this is like the Trinity talking about itself, right? And relax. I'm an atheist. We're going to talk about atheism later on in the show, but Isaac Asimov, the great Isaac Asimov said once he was talking about Carl Sagan and he said, you know, Carl Sagan's just one of the, one of two guys that's just plain smarter than I am. Uh, and for, unfortunately, Isaac Asimov and Carl Sagan are both dead. Uh, but the other person that he was talking about, remember, he said there was two people that were smarter than he was. The other person was Marvin Minsky himself, one of the co-founders of the artificial intelligence uh, department at MIT. Uh, and he's also just done a tremendous amount of work uh, when it comes to the digital age. Uh, of course, he wrote Society of Mind and, a, you know, a few a few different books that are really uh, worth reading. Just a brilliant guy. Uh, and, and it's a real loss and it's, it, it ticks me off. What pisses me off is that nowhere in my social circles, whatever, nowhere on wired or on anything, was there a big announcement? I mean, this should have been plastered all over the place saying, Oh God damn it. Marvin Minsky died, but it wasn't there. I don't know. I mean, it, yeah, it's a loss. Uh, just, just a brilliant human being. I mean, he lived to be 88. He, you know, that's any, any life in my opinion, any, any, any length of life is too short. <laughs> okay. Until we get into, you know, like maybe the, the higher four digits or so, maybe then, you know, that'll be considered a, a good long life. Uh, and believe me, I think that time is coming, but yeah, Marvin Minsky, you know, 88. I mean, I guess that's a good while, but uh, but what a brilliant man. And I definitely want to dedicate this episode of Sovereign Tech to him. And I'm sure that he would be very proud that podcasts like Sovereign Tech can even exist. Uh, he might even enjoy the show. Who, who knows? Maybe. <laughs> you know, that's the thing. This show, Sovereign Tech, I know for a fact, 
I know that it's heard at MIT. I know that it's heard at Dartmouth. I know it's heard at JPL. There's a lot of big halls on this planet that Sovereign Tech gets played in. I know it's happening. <laughs> so who knows? Maybe Minsky had the great honor of hearing, holy shit, listen to that golden stallion, that fine Hebrew boy there. Ha <laughs> ha. <No. laughs> anyway, <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> Minsky obviously was himself Jewish. Of course, so was Asimov and, uh, and Sagan. Not to say that that holds any special bearing. But anyway, that's enough of that. Let's get into the show. We've got a ton to cover as usual, and I'm going to kind of shake things up. I've, I've got some interesting, not shake things up as in change things around, but I have some interesting topics uh, to talk about, and, and some of them I might not be able to get to. I've got to, I'm going to try and get to a ton of questions uh, and important messages because, I mean, they are just backing up on me like there's no tomorrow. Maybe I should do an episode where it's just all listener questions. Uh, so if you have some like deep ones, perhaps, that you'd like me to spend a lot of time on, maybe I'll just do two hours straight and cover all of them so you can send those in to me of course go to zog.ninja or sovereigntech.com they all go to the same place there's the contact us tab at the top of the page hit that and then you will find you'll find me uh and and you can you know message me there's a contact form you can send an email bit message uh, i still get lots of bit messages i appreciate those uh, all kinds of things that that you can do to get in touch with the show so anyway let's get into the random access because uh, we i mean there's just some fascinating uh, developments happening and you know let's start it off i didn't get to this last week uh, when we had the lovely and hyper intelligent dr stephanie murphy on boy that was a that was a fun episode went into overtime uh but the Raspberry Pi 3 was released. Uh, and the Raspberry Pi, of course, is a $35 computer. Now, yes, it is a computer, and it's just a little circuit board, a very little circuit board. But usually, I mean, and, and historically, it's only been, what, four or four, five years, maybe, since since the first Raspberry Pi came out. And, it, and it's never gone up in price. They've always been like $35, which is impressive in itself, as much as each generation, uh, they get more powerful and add on more things. Um, you know, you got you to gotta imagine this is just a, you know, little circuit board of a computer. It does not come with a keyboard, does not come with a mouse, does not come with a monitor. It doesn't come with much of anything for that $35. Uh, however, you know, and one of the argue, one of the big complaints in the past was that, like, I think with the first model, it only had a couple of USB ports and it had an Ethernet port, but it did not have Wi-Fi. So you'd have to add that. You know, obviously it doesn't have Bluetooth. There's a lot of modern features that people generally expect in a computer that you would have had that you'd have to add to the Raspberry Pi. But now with the Raspberry Pi 3, they have added perhaps maybe what some would consider the most important and they've put it right onto the board and that is Wi-Fi. So the Raspberry Pi 3, the big difference in my opinion between it and its uh, predecessors is that it has Wi-Fi uh, built in. So you can just, you know, plug it in, do your thing and, and, you know, you can connect to a Wi-Fi network. Uh, and that, you know, that's fine. I, I think that that's great. And for it to only be 35 bucks, that's phenomenal. Uh, it's still a little bit underserved. It is quad core. Uh, which is great, and, but it is still a little underserved on the RAM department. I would have loved if it had two gig of RAM. I think it still only had, or I think that was another upgrade was to one one gig of RAM, uh, as to where previous generations had two fifty six and five hundred twelve respectively. Uh, so 
the Raspberry Pi 3, very cool. $35 computer. It really does work. It really does do everything. I know people that use it for, uh, well, all kinds of things to do coding. Uh, it's just a nice separate computer to have. Uh, of course, again, you have to buy a full on other monitor or connect it to a television. But then that lends itself to one of the really cool things it can do, too, is it can be quite the entertainment machine. Uh, because it does have USB ports on it. And of course, you can just connect the USB hub and then, you know, uh, quadruple the amount of USB ports on the device. Uh, and a lot of people will use it to what do they call them? Pi Tendos or Pi Nintendos. They'll use them to to do emulation of older gaming systems because it does a great job with that. I mean, shit, and the things, you know, fits in the palm of your hand. <laughs> That's it's fantastic, you know, for that sort of thing. And especially like with the if you're emulating the NES uh, or even the, you know, the Super Nintendo, uh, what a great thing to do because, because, you know, those games take up all of not even a gig of hard drive space. Uh, I mean, it's fantastic. So anyway, uh, the Raspberry Pi 3, far more complete now. If you've never bought one before, now is a really good time, especially for only $35. But of course, to get kind of all the add-ons like a power adapter like for the 35 dollars, i don't even think it comes with a power adapter uh you will you know you're going to end up shelling more like 55 to get a case to put it in and all that stuff but still incredibly inexpensive and a lot of people are taking it seriously there are uh, there are a lot of dev teams with their operating systems there's even a windows 10 version for raspberry pi not that I'm saying recommend, not that I recommend using Windows, uh, but, you know, there it is. So anyway, go for that. Uh, but if you do decide to use it, I mean, especially, you know, this is the thing is that it makes for a great test bed. If you really want to get into using a lot more of the open source, uh, uh, you know, software, if you want to get into the open open source ecosystem more, uh, it's a it's a really inexpensive way to get into that, uh, you know, when you can still have. And I mean, and you could just attach it like here's a fun thing to do, because like I said, I don't recommend Windows 10, but I understand if you're a gamer, which are, you know, people that spend a ton of money on computers on a regular basis are usually gamers. Uh, maybe you have your, you know, your desktop machine, you know, just this, this giant tower and you, have, you run Windows 10 on it. And it's kind of impractical, perhaps, to run most versions of Linux or perhaps the more pure open source uh, models of it. That makes a ton of sense. Okay, so what you could do is if you want to mess with open source software and operating systems, just grab a Raspberry Pi and start loading that shit on, you know, and there you go. And if you still want to play games, in fact, this is another piece of news for the random access. Uh, this is interesting, but MAME, that's the multi-arcade machine emulator in its latest version is now uh, now falls under the GPL license. It's completely open source. GPL license is about as far as software licenses go. It's the best one out there, in my opinion. Uh, well, all right. Bipcot. <laughs> Bipcot's great. <laughs> I shouldn't say JPL is the best, uh, but Bipcot, Bipcot.org, of course, uh, you hear an advertisement for that every show. And of course, all my games from Zomi Offline Games are registered under Bipcot. Uh, that's uh, <laughs> that's the best one. <laughs> so anyway. Uh, but GPL is great. Uh, so maybe somebody will have to tell the meme developers about Bipcot. Uh, but yeah, so so it's GPL completely open source. Now, th this was news, but let's be real here. MAME was already like totally open source. Uh, this is just now it's, it's all falling under, you know, the, the, the various, um, requirements of GPL. Uh, so, but that's great. I mean, that's awesome that one of the best pieces of emulate and one of the oldie oldest pieces of emulation software for playing arcade games. And that's what you use MAME for is to play, you know, classic, uh, I don't know, Arknoid or, you know, asteroids, even up to, uh, later games. 
you know, you got like a Sega rally and, and cruising USA and stuff like that. Uh, you know, MAME is, is great for all of that. And now that is completely open source. So you could toss that onto your Raspberry Pi. And if you're doing an open source build or floss, whatever word you want to use. Awesome. There, <laughs> there you go. You can you can load MAME on without without thinking twice. Uh, so I thought that that was uh, that was pretty cool. But now for some bad news in gaming. Uh, this is one I maybe it was last week. I warned uh, about the Coleco Chameleon. And that there was a scandal around it, that it was at a toy fair and apparently they stuffed inside of the, the case of the Atari Jaguar. Now this is important to discuss. Okay. Because what, and I've done write-ups about this uh, at ZOG.ninja, you know, dark Android, all that. I, I've done write-ups about this. I was really excited about this because what the, what the chameleon originally was called the retro VGS. I think I even covered it on sovereign tech and it was this idea of going back to cartridge based, completely offline gaming. It's a great idea for a bunch of reasons. One is, is that as I've said before, you know, it's amazing. My Atari 2600, I can still pop in a game into it. I mean, and that thing came out almost 40 years ago, you know, it's, it's an antique, but it still plugs in and it still works. You know, maybe you have to use an adapter, uh, you know, to connect it to a television or, or a monitor or whatever, but the damn thing still works. And, you know, I like that when I lay down some money on something, I'd like for it to do that. When you consider that modern consoles, you know, cost hundreds of dollars, uh, wouldn't it be great if they could still work instead of get a red ring of death inside of it, inside of a year? Uh, GameCube has similar longevity, but anyway, my point being, and also, you know, the fact, and this is why, you know, Azomi offline games, my own game company, you know, the word offline's in there because the requirements, you know, you look at uh, cases like game for windows live where developers had to go back. And when Microsoft shut down games for windows live, which was a way, it was a version of DRM. It was a way to games for windows live was a way to like verify that this person had a purchase copy. You'd have to log in with your Microsoft credentials and all that. It did more, but that, that was kind of the, I think the, the initial basis, but when Microsoft canceled games for windows live, there's a ton of games. Ones I have actually, that now no longer work because they can't connect to the server for games for windows live. So when I have Zomi offline games, that means you, there's no DRM. You could torrent the shit out of it if you wanted to really. Uh, and there's no need to connect to some external server. It just works and it'll work for all time. As long as you know, the code holds up with windows. Uh, and of course I, I plan on remedying that by making my games available for other systems. So anyway, uh, the, the idea of having a system that is cartridge based and doesn't really connect to the internet or the internet is, uh, an afterthought is a great idea. It's something that there's a, there is a huge market for, I think, as far as gamers go, because keep in mind, the average gamer's age is what? 35, not 10, not 20. It's 35. Okay, so the average gamer is used to a time where that wasn't the case, so they could still appreciate this. And I mean, shit, I'm not even 35. <laughs> okay, so I'm not even at the average gamer age. Uh, but anyway, it's a great idea. And the Retro VGS, it was a Kickstarter over the summer 2015. It failed, didn't work out. Like it, it didn't, they didn't raise enough money. But one of the ways they were already saving money was by putting the system into an Atari Jaguar case. Okay, and they, they paid, I don't know, $250,000 off of from some dental company for the plastic molds for for the atari jaguar which was a system in the 90s that that also flopped even though there were some great games on that uh but anyway 
And so what they found out, all that said, okay, they started, they wanted to start another Kickstarter. They ended up working with Coleco, which, as I said last week, the company Coleco is not the same Coleco that made the ColecoVision. This was just a separate company, I think, out of Chicago that ended up buying the name in 2005. Okay, but they bought... Uh, you know, they, they ended up joining together, working together. And at the end of February, 2016, they were going to start another Kickstarter for the ColecoVision. But the only, but apparently there's been a lot of last week. I just said, be careful. I think there's some fishy business going on around this. And other people had made me aware of that. Uh, but now there's some hard, more hard data on the whole story. And we've got other stories to get to. Don't worry. If you don't like me talking about video games, we'll get past this in just a minute. Okay, but now there's some there's some, you know, hard evidence to the fact that Coleco apparently said the only way we're going to work with you talking to the original retro VGS team, you know, the original chameleon team is if you deliver a finished product and we take it to, you know, to Toy Fair or whatever, you know, into expos and we show it off. And now it is more or less confirmed that there was there, there was SNES parts inside of this thing. The Kickstarter never took off and Coleco has now completely backed away. They've taken their name away from the chameleon. And they said that uh, now this is kind of hopeful because they said we clearly see there's a market for this. It's just a team that we were working with. You know, we're, we're not seeing eye to eye. And so. They they did say in their press statement that they are going to start. They're more or less saying they're going to start developing their own chameleon. And that would be amazing because I still think I know some people have arguments about around the economics of cartridge based gaming today. Uh, but I, I don't think I think if you, you know, the way with 3D printers and all this shit and everything you can do today and storing stuff uh, effectively, you could just pop in a micro SD card. A com- an incredibly inexpensive micro SD cards, uh, you know, into, into some form of cartridge. Uh, I think, I think you could still pull this off and you could pull it off really cheap and you could produce the games within a time frame that, uh, you know, to where you don't have to hold, hold a stock, you know, you don't have to have a backlog, a backstock of, a, of a bunch of these games. Uh, and so, you know, you could just make them as you go. So I think there's a way to do cartridge based gaming right now. Uh, you know, very inexpensively, despite some economic arguments around it, I really think it's possible. So that's exciting. I'd love to have it. Um, I had already started emailing the guys at, at Coleco about having Zomi offline games work with them. And obviously all of this stuff has fallen through now. Uh, but yeah, I tried. And if Coleco actually takes it seriously and comes out with something, then I'll see about getting my games working on there because the system's designed to, I think it could, I think the original idea and whether Coleco falls through with this or not, you know, I don't know. Um, but the original idea is that it would be able to do anything from like Atari to PlayStation one, that that's the graphical ability, uh, that this could have pulled off, but we'll see, we'll see what Coleco has in mind, but either way, I think it's an exciting uh, project, but an very unfortunate development to happen with it. So that, that project is literally dead. Um, until Coleco comes out with something and even then, you know, (laughs) I'm not going to talk about it really probably until it's on store shelves. Uh, that's, that's what it would take. Or if it's available to purchase online, uh, I am really tired of talking about things that aren't exactly to market yet, unless it's coming from, you know, a huge company, but even then you have flops. We'll talk about this a little bit later, perhaps, uh, the LG watch urbane second edition LTE. Yes, that's a mouthful. Uh, you know, that was supposed to come out 
Oh boy, that, that was supposed to come out in October of 2015. Uh, and then literally they had already sent out review versions of the, of the smartwatch. It was an Android Wear watch that had everything included. And then, you know, they, they pulled it. And they've also said now that they are going to be releasing it this year, 2016. Uh, but anyway, we might get into that a little bit later. Um, but speaking of something that is coming and that I do count on, you know, being very real because there are already actual models of it and all that, uh, even though it's not going to come to the consumer just yet. But in enterprise in the enterprise space, uh, Samsung is now offering a 15 terabyte, 2.5 inch solid state drive. 15 fucking terabytes. <laughs> I, I mean, we talked, we, what do we, we talked about those, uh, the, uh, the crystal, uh, discs, the, you know, those crystal data discs, uh, a, a couple episodes back, you know, and, and those could hold you know, tons and tons of terabytes and they're very small, but you know, that's, that's kind of down the road a little bit before people start using, you know, crystal data discs. Okay. But a hard drive, <laughs> you know, and that's the thing. You're not going to use those crystal structures as hard drives, at least not yet. That's way down the line. Um, but a hard drive, a solid state drive, 15 terabytes. Holy shit. Uh, yeah, that, that, that's phenomenal. And, it, you know, it, I mean, that's fast. It's solid state drive. So it's going to be incredibly fast. Um, and I just, you know, the other thing, too, is that the same technology that they're using to fit uh, 15 terabytes onto a solid state drive, you know, that trickles down. That's not just about a hard drive that trickles down to, you know, to flash drives and even SD cards. And I mean, considering the size, picture the size of a 2.5 inch drive. How much could you fit? And, you know, then picture the size of a flash drive or even a micro SD card. How much do you think you could fit on there? Oh, fuck, you could probably fit four terabytes on there. <laughs> I mean, that's it's phenomenal you know so that's a really that's a really exciting development and i i you know i'm not worried about talking about that one because that that's already hitting market uh but anyway another another bit of uh random access here uh this is an interesting one and this kind of follows up you know some people i i got a lot of emails saying that that people or you know people saying to me that they thought it was crazy last week uh, during the episode, of course, uh, Stephanie asked me, hey, you know, do you, do you think this whole, uh, you know, the, that physical media is effectively dead? Everything's digital. Everything's going up into the cloud and all that. And my answer was no. I said there was going to be a real serious backlash uh, against this, you know, against this, a lot of the cloud storage and a lot of the, you know, uh, digitization of everything. And I, you know, this just this past week, in fact, I did a write up about it um, at ZOG.Ninja on the Dark Android blog. Um, I think I called it the cloud has failed. Uh, <laughs> my point kind of got proven. And I think a lot of people are going to get really wise to all this because in the United Kingdom, in Britain, there is, of course, Barnes and Noble. They have uh, the Nook. Now, the Nook is there. And this has been going for a few years. I had actually the very first uh, Nook color, which. Boy, talk about longevity. You can you can run, I think you can put CyanogenMod Mod 12 on that damn thing. <laughs> and the device is like five, six years old, or you know, five years old, whatever. Um and they have the Nook, and Nook is their version of Kindle, you know, of, of the Kindle e-reader uh or Kindle tablets. And the Nook store is where you can buy books from Barnes and Noble. Uh, and it all works very much like Amazon's Kindle service. And, uh, you, know, you know, it works well for what it is. So that's not really the problem. But where the problem lies is that 
the in the UK they are now shutting Barnes and Noble is shutting down the entire Nook ecosystem. The servers, they're not going to sell any more hardware. I mean, there's there's a shit ton of problems here. Okay, because people that bought their books, you know, through Barnes and Noble onto their Nook, uh, you know, they're they're held by DRM to that Barnes and Noble account. Okay, to the Nook, they're not going to work elsewhere. You you don't go copying them off. These aren't DRM free. You know, this isn't Humble Bundle with games where you can just download them and play them anywhere. Um, I'm speaking of Humble Bundle. They stopped taking Bitcoin. I think there's a story there, but we'll cover that another time. But in any case, you know, th- this, this is what happens. If you don't have control of your actual purchases, of even of your digital purchases, you know, if you don't have your books in an actual EPUB format, there is the very real chance, we talked about this for years on Sovereign Tech, that those books will just disappear from your ability to access them. Now, Barnes & Noble, obviously, to keep from, you know, a, an even greater clusterfuck, is allowing you to transfer your Nook account to another service. And it, it's a third, you know, it's not anything to do with Barnes & Noble. It's a third-party service. I forget the name. But here's the thing. In their own writing, and you can read more about this at zog.ninja. In their own writing, Barnes & Noble said, most of your books. So there are purchases that you might have laid down 6 10 12 15 dollars for that are now lost to you they're gone for all time and this is why i don't think that physical media or uh even you know local media perhaps you know local data is going to go away anytime soon because you just you can't trust this shit (laughs) i mean these companies tank like you're at the whim of these companies in a very real sense as to where if you're using open source formats like EPUB, using open source software and all the rest, you're not at anybody's whim. Yeah, it's very, I mean, this is ugly. Uh, people are losing their books. Now, granted, you know, I, I get books off of Kindle here and there. And, but I'll tell you, I, I strip, <laughs> I strip the DRM right off those things. I convert them into EPUBs the instant I get them. I don't waste time. Because I don't, I mean, yes, I don't think Amazon's going anywhere anytime soon. I think they are the largest and most powerful company on the planet right now. Uh, But that doesn't mean that I want them to have control over what books I have access to. I want my books. You know, I lay down the cash, whatever given to me. So I think this is just one of those stories that's coming where there's going to be some some serious backlash. You know, and and just to update on Microsoft, the whole OneDrive, OneDrive gate. You know, that whole fiasco where they're offering people unlimited storage and then they, they backpedaled on the whole thing and they, they, they capped it out at a maximum of one terabyte. Uh, there's people, they were supposed to give you a year to get all of your terabytes off of OneDrive. There's people who have already lost data. Like there was, there was a fuck up uh, where it, it, it capped them down. And I think those people lost their data. I don't think Microsoft was able to necessarily repair it. I mean, this, this is fucking ugly shit. And I, you know, not that I want people to go into the legal system, but boy, if somebody sued somebody over the loss of that, I wouldn't blame them. Uh, Very ugly. The, the, the cloud is, and we talked about this maybe five, four or five episodes ago. The cloud is a great idea. It's just the present implementation of it, the server-based implementation of it, is a fucking failure. It's a mess. Okay? So, you know, hopefully new technologies will be coming out. I see ZeroNet's getting a lot of uh, a lot of press lately. MadeSafe is doing some great developments right now. Uh, you know, there's great things happening in the space to solve this whole problem. 
Uh, but th- this is a problem. And maybe we'll get into that more uh, in the next segment. So anyway, uh, let's see. What other stories do we have here? You know, actually, yeah, let's... <laughs> This is perfect. This this proves that point. The whole point I'm making about that. This dovetails so nicely. I saw a story this week that said that Sony, who is the uh, the creators of Blu-ray, which was the last or, you know, which I kind of hope isn't. But as it stands right now is in many ways the last, uh, you know, physical format or most advanced last physical format with which to to purchase movies. Uh, and I don't, you know, I, I know people that still buy Blu-rays and good for them because, I mean, fuck, if you're just going to rely on your Netflix account, well, they take movies away every month. How do you know what you can even watch in that thing? It'd be such a headache for me to have to keep track of, well, gee, you know, this whole thing that I rely upon to watch every TV show and, and all my movies, uh, what's actually available on there this week? I have no fucking clue. I mean, that, that that's a headache. I swear if I could just look up at a shelf and say, oh, yeah, I have that. And rock and roll. But anyway, Blu-ray, so Sony, they are now uh, apparently doing very good business in the fact that they are selling Blu-rays. Companies are buying Blu-rays for long-term storage. Now, what companies, you may ask? Well, Facebook (laughs) and others. Cloud companies are buying Blu-rays. I mean, this is so funny. Cloud companies are buying Blu-rays to do long-term data storage. Hold on, you know, of older older storage as well. (laughs) Hold on. (laughs) Aren't you the same fucking companies telling me not to buy Blu-rays and to buy your digital shit? What are you using to store your shit? Oh, you're using Blu-rays? Where does that make any goddamn sense? <laughs> I read that story and I was just like, holy shit. Like, like talk about, I mean, that's so blatant. Like, they're more or less telling you, look, we don't have servers that can go on. For, they're proving every point I've made on this show for some time. They're, they don't have all the servers in the world to, you know, to, to have this long-term uh, data storage. Uh, the, yeah, I mean, <laughs> they're also, there's probably some, some kind of quiet admittance that, you know, they, like that, that there is there's data loss and that there's there's potential more problems with the whole server, you know, server based cloud server based systems. I think it's a real quiet admission that there's problems there and that they're going to physical media. Holy shit. And, you know, just to just to you know, clarify, Blu-ray, the technology is certainly the latest in physical media, but it's not exactly like the most advanced and latest because M-Disc, which I've talked about in this show and which uh, some very kind listeners that have used the Amazon wish list, which has been updated, by the way, please do check it out. Go to ZOG.ninja, support us. Uh, had gotten me some end discs. Of course, they are the DVD versions, but M-Disc is a disc that literally is made out of stone. In a very real sense, and it lasts for over a thousand years. Now, I have a disc with sovereign with every Sovereign Tech episode on it, and that disc I could go bury it in the ground, and a thousand years from now, people could pick that up. And as long as they have a DVD player, they don't have to have an M disc player. As long as they have a DVD player, they can rock that shit out. And I'm sure that a lot of companies are looking at that technology. But you, I mean, you don't see MDisc getting made available anywhere else. You don't hear about companies, uh, you know, you don't hear about production houses, you know, entertainment companies selling you products on MDisc. Of course, that's because they don't want you to hit. I mean, why would a company want you? And I say this, you know, with, with a, a touch of sarcasm and disgust. Why would a company 
want you to buy a disc that could be the last disc you'll ever buy. It's backwards compatible with, you know, every piece of technology that's already out there. So they don't have to sell you a new player. Uh, it's also, you know, it's going to last you a thousand years. It's the last copy of a movie you'd ever have to buy. No, there's no company out there that's going to sell you that shit. Even though it's awesome. Even though if you lay down your money for it, why shouldn't it last you forever? <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, and Blu-rays already do a pretty good job of lasting, you know, decades at least. Uh, that you know that that that's for sure. So I mean, good on Sony for that. Sony's actually kind of an odd company. They're they're the oddball in all this because Sony uh, believes in having durable technology, kind of like their uh, boy. But the, was that called M Disc? I don't think that was called M Disc. But they had maybe it was called M Disc. But in the nineties, they had a micro discs or whatever. They had uh, a CD technology effectively that was inside. What it was, it looked like a CD inside of a floppy disk drive. Okay. And this, the CD inside this floppy disk drive was, or not, not drive, but a, a encasement. It looked like a 3.5 inch disc, but it had a CD inside of it. This thing was, I mean, it was practically indestructible. You could throw one down and I had, I had a, I had one of them and the player and all that. And I mean, Sony just loves proprietary formats, but whatever, regardless, this was really, really durable at a time when tapes were, you know, getting eaten up by your tape player, you know, audio cassettes uh, and CDs, of course, are so easy to scratch. Not with not not with Sony's technology. And I, I think that might have been called MDIS. That's kind of weird. Maybe it was with a K at the end. Uh, but anyway, so, it, it, you know, side story. <laughs> but I just I think the Blu-ray thing's amazing that, you know, all these companies are telling you to get away from physical media. Yet they're running to physical media. Mind boggling. <laughs> there's the truth for you from sovereign tech. Um, but, uh, I saw a guy, I shared the story on social media. This guy, he took, he, I forget what old computer he had, but he was converting an old computer. And I've done this too, where I took an old 386 case and I threw in, you know, quad core, uh, you know, AMD, uh, uh, two, you know, machine, but he had this old computer and he had the floppy disk drive and he wanted, you know, the 3.5 inch floppy. And he's like, you know, could I really make this usable again? I don't use 3.5 inch floppies, which not to say that those aren't used anymore. I, I still have some that I use for, you know, rewriting Mac IDs. Uh, ooh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, the golden stallion can play. <laughs> but anyway, uh, he took his 3.5 inch drive, you know, uh, and he, uh, he made it so that it could work as a micro SD card reader or as an SD card reader. And so he, you know, he can put in like the, the way that the bottom where it lines up, where the, the, the floppy disk would open up to show the magnetic tape right there. He could inject, you know, he could just put in an SD card and then he could, you know, he had to do some converting, but it was brilliant. It was, it was so, so well done. Uh, I thought that was really cool. I mean, completely impractical, total nostalgia, but I just thought it was badass. Uh, I used to love, you know, you see this in the movie, the movie Hackers, where uh, the character Dade Murphy, Zero Cool, he, you know, there's a point where like he has he has floppy disks in his jeans, like like kind of tucked in the top of his jeans on his waist, <laughs> and he'd like pull one out and, whew, you know, like he was a lone gunman or something, and. Uh, <laughs> I used to do that. <laughs> I thought that was cool as shit. I love it. I mean, and I still love carrying around, you know, USB drives for varying reasons. But anyway, <laughs> uh, I, I think, all right, that, that's, that's enough random access for, for this episode. We, we've, been, we've been going long here. Uh, but I have a really interesting story that I do want to, that I want to get into. 
uh, before we get into HackSec. Uh, this is actually really important. This is more of a science thing, maybe even a bit cultural. It's not necessarily tech, uh, but it is very, very important. And this has to do with, and uh, boy, this is pretty timely, but don't that was a pun <laughs> because it has to do with daylight savings time, which is coming up. Uh, you're going to have to, uh, you know, turn your uh, turn your or turn your clock forward, right? Spring forward, fall back. And so I, this is from uh, Gothamist.com, and I want to read the story here. When daylight, why daylight saving times uh, system needs to end forever by Ben Yakis, and this is actually from uh, from last year. This is a story previous. So I imagine this news cycle will pick up again. People saying that daylight savings time needs to end, but I want to touch on it here. And it's a very interesting subject. So I want to read it. They give tons of great reasons here why it needs to cut, why it needs to come to an end. So why don't we go ahead and break right into the story? I mean, it opens up with really the fascinating reasons why it even exists. And you might be shocked as to why that is. It may not be exactly what you think. Sometime reading uh, during that nebulous post SNL zone, Saturday Night Live, of course, between 1, a, 1 and 2 a.m. Saturday night and Sunday morning, it'll be time to turn the clocks forward one hour for daylight saving time, not savings. Uh, I, I do that all the time. I say savings. <laughs> anyway, the biggest chronological scam in history. More enlightened states such as Arizona and Hawaii have cast off the chains of DST, but New York is still pointlessly tethered to it. We agree that it's uh, it's great to leave work and still have an hour or two of sunlight, but this country and New York City in particular doesn't need to abide by the antiquated daylight saving time system anymore to be able to get that. Due to overwhelming demand, we've revisited and refined our previous list of reasons why daylight saving time should end forever. Uh, and they have it now with numerical points, uh, bullet points. But anyway, let's go with number one. Let's start this right up. We're talking about this is number one. We're talking about a tradition that was started by Benjamin Franklin in 1784 because he was interested in conserving candles. And that's only if you assume he was being serious. He's credited with coming up with the idea as a joke. Now, there's a bunch of links within this article that you might want to check out to verify things for yourself. Of course, go to SovereignTech.com, episode 167, I believe, and, and, and you can look at those. And I just, you know, I love <laughs> the hubris of, of, of Ben Franklin. Let's say he wasn't kidding. Just the idea that, yeah, let's just change the way clocks work. That way we can, you know, let's, let's change the entire human condition. That way we don't use as many candles. I, Come on. <laughs> anyway, most likely he was joking. Uh, let's go to number two. It was popularized by William Willett, who had a very confusing plan for how to implement it. Really, the only reason the U.S. adopted it was so that President Woodrow Wilson, an avid golf enthusiast, could get more hours on the green. <laughs> how about that? <laughs> of course, 1913, Woodrow Wilson uh, fucked up a whole bunch of things and World War One. I, I mean, well, now you, you can even blame amazingly. You can even blame daylight saving time on Woodrow Wilson. If that guy didn't fuck up more things in the world. <laughs> God damn it. Anyway, uh, Number three. OK, sure. And to conserve coal during World War One. Uh, there's no argument that daylight saving time worked during World War One and World War Two. But bayonets were also considered effective weapons once upon a time. Uh, so this is the other gaffe, too. And and the, wow. Uh, <laughs> 
And you can still blame Woodrow Wilson, I mean, for really, uh, for this even being a thing, because we wouldn't have been into World War One if not for, uh, you know, political machinations, which were more or less uh, condoned uh, by Woodrow Wilson himself. So the idea is, is that, yeah, the war machine with daylight savings time would be more or daylight saving time would be more efficient using less coal. Uh, just just crazy. But I mean, where's the real problem here? Is the problem, uh, you know, the need for a more efficient uh, economic model or is the problem the fact that we're going to fucking war? We as in the people of the United States, not we as in me or you. Ridiculous. Number four, uh, for Christ's sakes, will it is the great, great grandfather of Coldplay singer Chris Martin. Isn't that enough reason to end this? <laughs> Who knew? (laughs) I'm not a fan of Coldplay. Uh, Number five, the other man who is credited with the proposal is New England entomologist George Vernon Hudson in 1895. Of course, the reason he was in favor of it was so he could study insects longer during daylight hours. I, (laughs) all these people want this stuff just so that they can. uh, Yeah, it's like, well, you know, change the entire way that time is measured just so I can do whatever, go golfing or or measure insects. Unbelievable. Uh, Number six. So really, the only reason we have daylight saving time is because of one man's perverse interest in insect culture and the divine right of unabashed selfishness. Uh, The most lingering legacy of daylight saving time is the fact that you get the song Yellow stuck in your head and hate yourself for singing along, basically. Uh, anyway, number seven, daylight saving time was designed to give people more time in sunlight and ostensibly to conserve energy. But many prominent studies have proven we get little, if any, benefits from the practice. A U.S. Department of Trans- Transportation study in the 1970s concluded that total electricity savings associated with daylight saving time amounted to about one percent in the spring and fall months. And that was offset by the increase in air conditioner use. So it's not even true. There is no there's no energy savings to be had here. If there is, it's minimal compared to, as we go down this list more, the the real negatives that can come out of it. Number eight, a more recent study in 2006 found similar results, which was noted by two academics who wrote a New York Times op-ed piece in 2008. They argued that not only is there little scientific proof that this reduces energy consumption, it's actually more wasteful than not and super annoying, annoying, which we already know. Number nine. Uh, chronobiologists agree as well. Uh, Boris Ziv- Zivkovich wrote a fantastic essay in which he argues daylight saving time is basically destroying our brains. Quote, whether or not DST saves energy is the least of the reasons why it's a bad idea. Much more important are the health effects of sudden hour-long shifts on our bodies and minds, end quote. The entire world is jet-lagged for several days after the changeover. In other words, if on March 9th, or, you know, whatever time daylights or this year when daylight saving time gets uh, implemented uh there were there were an alien attack or if the bubonic plague ridden rats decided to mobilize their feast their forces we'd be seriously screwed so again this article is about a year old so the the date that is being done is different but it's coming up i think next weekend so now that that article uh that that 
the, the study that was done by the chronobiologist there, like goes into there's causes in heart attacks. I mean, and then it goes even beyond that. Like there's stuff that, uh, uh, you know, there's there's lots of in traffic. There's more traffic accidents. People die. I mean, there's all, all this crazy shit. Uh, but let's read on. Number 10. Oh, and you know what backs that up? Experts say that traffic accidents. OK, here it is. Set, tends to spike the first Monday after daylight saving time as motors struggle with an hour less sleep in darker early morning road conditions. So DST leads to death and destruction, even without bringing the rats and aliens into this. Uh, Zivkov, number 11, Zivkovich also notes that cows hate DST. They get depressed. Quote, they may give less milk than usual. They could take days or weeks to get used to the new milking schedules, end quote. When will we stop thinking of ourselves and start thinking of our bovine brothers and sisters? <laughs> I love the humorous attitude in the story. Uh, number 12, and get this, daylight savings saving time can kill you. During the first week of DST, there's a spike in heart attacks, as I mentioned. According to a study in the American Journal of Cardiology, the end of daylight saving time could cause or causes a decrease in heart attacks. Why are we still talking about this and not storming the White House? Well, political action's meaningless, just... <laughs> I mean, all people really need to do with daylight saving time is just completely ignore it and mass. And the system would have to force itself. Like if suddenly everybody at a, at a specific business showed up, you know, an hour early or later, depending on, you know, whatever, uh, whatever time of year that, I mean, no one's going to be getting in trouble and the business, I mean, you know, that, that's, that's how you do it. There's no need to pass legislation. I mean, I guess you, you'd have to decriminalize <laughs> time. <laughs> I, 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 I still have more to get through in this list, but like, just think about that. You know, you, you consider space and time, you consider the universe and all of its grandeur and all of its size. And somehow, you know, it, it just, just the solar system, just consider the solar system. Somehow the U S government thinks that they have any kind of control over that and that they can pass a law <laughs> on time. You know, I mean, it starts with people, right? It starts with that insect uh, uh, studying guy. It starts with it starts with all this shit. <laughs> Who do you people think you are <laughs> that that you can somehow decide how time is to be handled? Oh man! All right. Anyway, number thirteen. But wait, there's more. Up to three hundred sixty-six lives could be saved a year, according to a two thousand four study in the journal Accident Analysis and Prevention. If we abolished this silly back and forth system, number fourteen. This isn't just an American problem, according to the journal uh, Sleep and Biological Rhythms. There is an uptick in suicides in Australian men during the first weeks after daylight saving time. Let us, as a nation, set an example for the rest of the world, and maybe we can have some lives save some lives along the way uh whatever all right again i'm not saying pass any laws i'm just saying you know let, let's just put an end to this shit <laughs> anyway uh number 15 america is falling behind the more enlightened anti-dst parts of the world slate points out a 2011 study in the journal of neuroscience psychology and economics that states uh Students in country in counties where DST has was observed had SAT scores that were two percent lower than those of students who didn't have to spring forward or fall back. DST is literally making us stupider. Now I'll, I'll cut in on that. Of course, you know SATs, all those kind of tests, those are absolute bullshit. The entire schooling system's bullshit. Uh, but 
whatever point taken is that it's definitely affecting you mentally. No question there. Uh, and really folks, no question. I mean, how many journals, how much science is needed to prove the point that DST is a fucking atrocious idea. Number 16, stupider and less productive. The sleepiness of DST results in an acute spike in quote unquote cyber loafing. According to a 2012 report in the journal of applied psychology, don't you waste enough time doing that during uh, work during that during work year round as it is, can you really afford to be clicking around on listicles even more? So the point is, is that according to the journal, it causes people to spend way more time on the internet. Now I'm not saying necessarily that that's a bad thing, uh, but you get the point. Definitely a, a lack in productivity, I, I would imagine. Uh, number 17, but you know who loves daylight saving time? The French fry industry, a founder of the Daylight Saving Coalition, once testified in Congress that fast food restaurants do sell more French fries than DST. Do we really want to support Big Fry any more than we already do? <laughs> that's that's interesting, too. I mean, like, I wonder how much lobbying would go on. Like, let's say this did become a political issue and people are like, OK, we need to decriminalize daylight saving time. Let's say that happened. Would lobbyists for companies like come out and say, well, yeah, but, you know, we're going to have this economic failure if, you know, if, if we go away from daylight saving time. Amazing. I mean, I mean, like the corporatist nightmare that that would create is just mind boggling to me. And it probably, you know, I bet there would be people that would make the case. I mean, what the fuck is this? A daylight saving coalition? You need a whole coalition around this shit. Crazy. Uh, number 18, who else loves daylight saving time uh, besides the golf and French fry industries? Big charcoal. Quote, the barbecue grill and charcoal industries say they gained 200 million in sales with an extra month of daylight saving. And they were among the biggest lobbies in favor of extending daylight saving time from six to seven months in 1986. End quote, says Michael Downing, author of Spring Forward, the annual madness, madness of daylight saving time. So there you go. There, it's, it's, it has already happened. You know, where industries are like, oh, yeah, oh, we support daylight saving time because we do good money out of it, be it golf and who doesn't. The fucking president golfs. The president now golfs. You're not just Woodrow Wilson. Uh, crazy. If you, if you ever want, needed a case to end government. I mean, that's how you stop this corporatism bullshit. Uh, number 19, Downing, uh, a hero who wrote a book, a whole book about how stupid that that's the guy we, we just mentioned, Michael Downing, a hero who wrote a whole book about how stupid daylight saving time is, believes we waste much more energy than we save. Gas consumption always goes up, something the gas industry has known since the 1930s and scuttled to the side. Quote, Every time the government studies daylight saving time, it turns out that we are really saving nothing when all is said and done, end quote, Downing says. So there you have it. I mean, like the evidence is there and it's just being completely ignored and it's been brought before Congress. Again, the government solves nothing. Uh, <laughs> if that point's not strong enough, I don't know how to make it stronger. Number 20. OK, you might be saying to yourself about now, uh, what about sunshine? Why would you want to deny us our precious extra hour of direct sunlight, you weather fascist? Here's the thing. We can have it both ways. As it stands now, eight months of the year, we're quote unquote saving daylight. So we're almost there. Will winter really feel all that different if we were saving daylight then as well? Why don't we just adopt the time frame we call daylight saving time as regular old time? 
This is our plea. This is our cause. This is our time. Call your congressman and ask them to save time forever this time. Now, don't call your congressman. That's bullshit. Okay. (laughs) Don't don't do anything of the sort. But I think educating people about this fact that this is such a terrible idea. I mean, eventually people just there'll be such an uproar, such a cultural shift on the matter uh, that it would just it would just change. And, yeah, you know, you could just stick with daylight saving time in and of itself and and go on forward. Uh, There's I already said it earlier in the show. It is madness that people think that they can legislate effectively the sun. I mean, this just shows how crazy so many human beings are. I think, it, I mean, it definitely needs to go away. There's no doubt about that. But it in and of itself, and I'm not saying you have to get rid of time zones and you have to do all this, even though there, there's been, you know, that's an interesting subject to talk about. Uh, some people have, have looked into that. But for fuck's sake, put an end to this. Just start culturally making it completely unacceptable. Because it, 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 it's, it's madness. Maybe if New Hampshire ever gets some independence, maybe they'll put an end to, uh, to DST as well. Anyway, this is Sovereign Tech. I'll be back with more. Whoa. Okay. Yeah. Time for a live read. Hey, (laughs) so a couple things real quick uh, to cover with you, of course. Less than a month away, the return of Sex and Science Hour. Lovely and hyper-intelligent Dr. Stephanie Murphy and I, we are going to be delivering the goods. Woo! Very excited about this. Uh, The other thing, speaking of delivering the goods, this week I released a new Audio of the Ancients album. Uh, You can go to audiotheancients.xyz, or if you go to Bandcamp, which is where the album's available, you can just type in Audio of the Ancients at uh, at bandcamp.com, and it's The Descent of Ishtar. Uh, Very exciting I know uh, people were expecting the Epic of Gilgamesh to be released. That's still coming out, and it's coming out very soon. Uh, But I just wanted to... The Descent of Ishtar is kind of this nice... Uh, almost a prequel of sorts uh, to to the Epic of Gilgamesh. So I thought it'd be great to put that out first. So it's an EP, all original music, all original performances. I even performed the female parts in the in the in the album. <laughs> so you can grab it. Uh, you can purchase a copy at, on Bandcamp, or you can go to AudioTheAncients.xyz, and it's all right there. Uh, go to zog.ninja, and it's right there. And uh, anyway, I really appreciate it. Let's get back to Sovereign Tech. Welcome, Agent Sovereign. Please put on your headset to enter virtual reality. I'm ready. Hit me. Now entering. Unimatrix Zero. Ah, I love this place. Secret community away from the... Hey, Agent Sovereign. Hello, who are you? I'm Pixel. I like this place you've built in VR. Encrypted, secure, and very private. No one from the corporate system to see us or tell us what to do. And if you're here, you must be friends with... (laughs) Oh yes, I've met the other girls, Brian. But I'm here now because we have another mission. We need to hack into the new system. They're about to... Tell me on the way. Let's get out of Unimatrix Zero. And don't worry. Quick hack solves everything. Hacksack. It is time for a hacksack where usually we talk about issues of hacking and security issues, infosec. 
Uh, and, you know, I, I, I want to do kind of an update. I have a little bit of shorter time here in this segment, and I sort of want to do an update on something that I think a lot of people recognize as being privacy infringing uh, and a potential security issue. And that, of course, being the Amazon Echo, this just this device that has taken a lot of the world by storm, it seems. Uh, and of course, if you don't know what the Amazon Echo is, it's a, you know, a little cylindrical device that you talk to. It's sold by Amazon, made by Amazon. It's all internal and it will, it can do various things. It can do, it can make a shopping list for you. You can run a timer for you. It can play music for you. Uh, you know, it's like Google now, but it's run by Amazon and, and, you know, people say, Hey Alexa, yada, yada. If you've never listened to Sovereign Tech before, if you, if you've listened to Sovereign Tech before, I've talked about, uh, you know, the echo often now there are two new models of the echo that have come out both of one of which is the the echo dot and then the other is uh, a portable version of of the echo that because the normal amazon echo you have to plug into the wall so it's not something that you necessarily take with you uh, as to where the the new version of the echo is mobile you you can it's battery powered you can take it with you and you can use it anywhere now, the importance of why I want to talk about this uh, for, for a little while, I don't have a full on story, is that I think that there's there's a lot of there's a lot of issues actually that come up around uh, the Amazon Echo, not just the fact that there's a microphone there at all times uh, that, you know, that could be potentially listening to you. Now, granted, some people have brought up the issue that, you know, if you if you do any like network traffic analysis, you'll see that the Echo is not sending data nonstop, you know, to wherever. Uh, and so some people say, well, that means that it's not always listening uh, to you. And yeah, that's, that might be kind of true, but you know, you got to do more than just like an hour or two of network analysis or even 48 hours worth of network analysis. Like, I think you'd have to be looking at it at all times. And then I, I still wonder, you know, Obviously, the NSA, GCHQ, whoever will use whatever they can uh, to listen in on you. But bottom line is, is I don't think that the study is saying that the Amazon Echo is not listening to you, perhaps for keywords or things like that. Uh, I, I don't I don't buy it yet that that it's not it, at the very least, if it doesn't start recording after you say perhaps a certain thing or whatever the case may be. I know that that's very conspiratorial. Uh, there's not a lot, of, a lot of evidence, but I don't think there's necessarily evidence, at least enough evidence uh, either way, you know, the other way to say that somehow there isn't any kind of, uh, you know, that network traffic doesn't peak at, shall we say, important points, at least according to Amazon. Um, because there was a story, and I think we talked about it briefly on Sovereign Tech, where a woman apparently mentioned that they were going on a trip and then suddenly, you know, did not say to Alexa, did not call up Alexa. And then suddenly her website, uh, or, you know, when she went to Amazon, like it showed up as, you know, showing luggage. So, and some people have tried to debunk that sort of thing, but I don't know. We're talking about very serious security researchers, really on both sides, I know, but the argument's still out there. So anyway, the important thing I want to bring up, I want to talk about the Amazon Echo a little more in the abstract here, because this is really like, this is a popular device. And the question is, is why is it so popular? And I was listening to another podcast and they kind of, they brought up some interesting points that, that led my mind down, down a certain road. And really the Amazon Echo is, is a paradigm shift. And it may be the direction that things are going. As I've predicted on Sovereign Tech in the past, uh, Amazon is, I mean, you know, they're, they are already, I think, the tech company. In fact, when you ask Alphabet slash Google, who is their competition? They don't say Apple. They don't say Microsoft. 
they say Amazon. And the Amazon Echo is really kind of key to to that that domination, we'll say, that market domination. Um, and as I've said, Amazon's becoming a monopsony, not just a, not a monopoly, but a monopsony, as in they control distribution, you know, not necessarily that they control production. And both are, are terrible things, uh, in my opinion, and most in a lot of economists' opinion. But anyway, and I'm not an economist. So a lot of, when the Amazon Echo first came out, a lot of people asked, why didn't Sonos think of this? Why didn't Apple think of this? Why didn't Google think of this? Like, why didn't anybody think about this? And the interesting point, you know, that, that I kind of came to realization with is that they micro like Microsoft in the 90s. OK, Microsoft couldn't picture in the late 90s. They could not picture any technology existing without connecting to the PC. Like the PC was going to be the hub of everything. All right. And in many ways, honestly, they're still kind of right at the end of the day. Uh, But then, you know, what happens in 2007 is that, and this is kind of the theory is that Apple knows that they can't break into the PC market. They're just, they're not, they're not going to do it. And like we mentioned last week, you know, even uh, Palmer Lucky of Oculus Rift, they said, well, once Apple makes a good computer, we'll make a VR headset for them. So, you know, point kind of, I'm not the only one saying that, (laughs) even though at one point they did make great computers, but anyway, they couldn't. And, and that, you know, that's true too. Like my favorite computer, I said this last week, but my favorite computer ever was the Mac uh, G4 Cube. And I think it was the pinnacle of design. And if that couldn't get people to buy into the Apple ecosystem, no PC, you know, no computer was going to do that. And I think they realized that. And now I've realized that. And it, and it proves my point of why it was such a great machine. But anyway, the so what happens is, is they go with the iPhone. That becomes their thing because they know the iPod really struck. Like, yeah, okay, we didn't get any market share with computers, really. Nothing really to write home about. But with our mobile devices, oh, we're winning big. And so they go with the iPhone. And then that becomes the big deal. But then what happens there is, is that Apple suddenly realizes, or, you know, Apple falls into, not realizes, but Apple falls into the same trap that Microsoft fell into and why Microsoft kind of got toppled was because they wanted everything to still connect to the PC. Okay. But that's not how on the consumer space, how that ended up working out. Now, you know, Apple realizes in 2007, okay, we have the phone, this thing's going gang, you know, iPhone's going gangbusters. And so what happens is, is that now they can't, Apple can't get it out of its head that, you know, not everything has to revolve around the smartphone. And so now Apple's in trouble. Okay. And even though Steve Jobs said that everything's going to eventually wrap around the cloud, yeah, there might be some truth to that. But Apple never implemented that very well. However, Amazon did. They skipped every ecosystem. They skipped the computer. They, they, I mean, yes, they had the failed Fire Phone. Okay. So maybe that's part of what inspired them to create the Amazon Echo in the first place. But they skipped all the ecosystems and they said, no, let's just come out with a whole new, yes, it's going to connect to the cloud. It's going to connect to our website, but we're going to go with a whole new system. And, and that's what they did. They're, it's not attached to, you know, it's not attached to anything. It, it has to connect to a Wi Fi router, that's for sure. But other than that, it's not connected to shit. And I, it's, it's such a fascinating, like, like concept. That that's how that happened. And and what's beautiful about it is that the Amazon Echo, now it's not a beautiful product. I have a problem with with carrying around microphones at all times. Yes, for those that haven't listened for very long, I do have a problem with carrying around a smartphone all the time. Okay. I'm not inconsistent in that. Doesn't mean I don't have one. It just means that, hey, I have a fucking problem with it. Okay, now 
I'm not saying the Amazon Echo is a good product, but what I am saying is that the Amazon Echo is, it shows that incrementalism, in my opinion, doesn't work because this was not an incremental product. This was a product that just kind of came out of nowhere and doesn't attach to anything. It doesn't work off of really any other ecosystem, you know, other than Amazon's, obviously their own servers and their own service. So the reason really that Microsoft, Google, whatever company, you know, Apple and all of them didn't come up with something that is doing as well in the market as the Amazon Echo is because they're, they're stuck in very old thinking. And, okay, how do we attach to this? How do we attach it to this? How do we attach it to the smartphone? How do we attach it to the, to the PC, you know, and, and on down the line? That way of thinking doesn't work. That way of thinking doesn't give, like, exponential growth like the Amazon Echo is seeing. And, you know, I think this is important. I mean, that, this, this idea of getting away from incrementalism is so key to everything. If you want to live a freer life, don't attach what you're doing to the bank. Don't attach what you're doing to fucking anything, to any institution. Just come up with something completely separate. Okay, now, all that said, I do want to talk about what kind of the insidiousness, I think, that Amazon might be getting into. Now, I, I'm a little frustrated because Wired wrote a story this week uh, that, and, and I shared it on, on various social media, Wired wrote a story this week talking about how the Amazon Underground, which is their app, their 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 special sideload app, okay, that's not available in the Google Play Store, that that app is doing very, very well. People are playing it to no end, and, you know, companies, dev houses are making money and all this stuff. I said that months ago, the instant it was announced, I said, this is going to be huge, because what it allows for is you don't have to pay for um you don't have to pay for uh like in-app purchases or you don't have to pay for premium games you just get them for free and how based upon how much uh you play amazon pays the various game developing houses kind of like rovio rovio is doing amazing success i've covered that already on sovereign tech okay but now wired's coming out saying oh look at this this is an amazing new model uh you know who would have expected that this would be a big deal but it is a big deal i called it i don't get any fucking credit for it nobody gives a shit uh, but there it is. I, I said that it would that it would be massive. Um, but what Wired missed was that it was Wired was turning every you know that or that Amazon is turning everybody into an employee, and Amazon you, you know be be authors with like Kindle Unlimited and and game devs. Okay, because you're going to be relying upon that paycheck from Amazon. So this is part of their part of their monopsony. Now, here's where their monopsony gets a little bit worse, okay, besides Amazon Underground, which, you know, by the way, again, proof of concept. I love the fact that the Amazon Echo proves that incrementalism is bullshit. You just come out with a completely new product, doesn't connect to shit, okay? And the Amazon Underground proves that we need apps and app stores that exist outside of the Google Play Store, which is one of the central precepts of, of uh, Dark Android, of the Dark Android project at darkandroid.info. Get away from Google Apps. Amazon proves that that's necessary. Amazon Underground does, and that it can work and be successful. So great. In concept, those things prove points. That That's nice. But here's what I think Amazon's planning on doing with the Echo now. One of the unique things with that, one of the new Echoes, the smaller one, the Echo Dot, and while people figured out workarounds for this, they made it the only way you could buy it is if you bought it, if you ordered it through the Amazon Echo or if you ordered it through the Fire TV, two devices that work with Alexa. Again, there was workarounds around it, but this is interesting, is that they Amazon was really forcing how 
you're going to be able to buy product from Amazon. And they are creating the channels within which you perhaps at some point will need to go through. And I mean, people went through the hoops. They wanted that fucking Amazon dot or that echo dot. Again, this is a big deal. You know, like people love these, they love Alexa (laughs) just straight up. Now, what's interesting in that, and, and here's, here's where this is going to affect podcasters. And I think it's going to affect a few different industries. Is that Amazon, you have the Amazon affiliate program, which works out as great free advertising for Amazon. Of course, Amazon doesn't really need advertising anymore. You know, they're that big. Just like Google's a verb, right? So, but but what, what's going to happen here is when you order something through Amazon. Now, I don't know if this works for Amazon Smile, but bottom line is, is that usually you set up an affiliate link. Like I have an affiliate link where if you order something through my affiliate link that that you can find at SovereignTech.com, go to the Support Us tab. Uh, if you order through my affiliate link, I get a little bit of a cut of what you buy. You, there's no price difference to you, but I get a little bit of a cut. Okay, now Amazon probably hates that fact. And they, I'm sure they started the affiliate program just so that they could get advertising. Now they don't need it anymore. Okay, but here's the thing with that affiliate link. With the Echo, with the Amazon Echo, there's no affiliate link. So if you get used to ordering things through the Echo, Amazon gets the full cut. They, they get everything. There's, there's no, more, no more affiliate links to be done. So they're going to save a whole ton of money on that. Okay, I mean, that, that's, and that's going to disrupt a lot of things because I know people, honestly, and this, this isn't me, <laughs> I wish it was, but it's not, uh, I know people that live off of you know, their Amazon affiliate link. Like literally they, they buy their food with it. They buy everything, you know, through the affiliate money they make off of their link. Uh, that's going to go away. You know, if, if the Amazon echo uh, keeps growing and I don't see why, uh, you know, really why it wouldn't. Um, I mean, I think it's, I, I don't care for it just because of the fact that all this stuff is getting, you know, all the, everything you said, I don't mind the idea of the Amazon echo, uh, in the abstract, I don't mind so much of this stuff in the abstract. It's just the fact that this is getting all put in, you know, everything you say to it and anything it finds interesting is getting put into a centralized database. That's a problem for me. should be a problem for you, I think. So anyway, I think that's the reality around the Amazon Echo. It's going to end up saving Amazon a ton of money, and it is really bolstering their coming monopsony. That's important to bring up. I don't know anybody else talking about it. I'm telling you, that's how it is. Or at least that's how I see it. And I'm like I said earlier, this show is show prep. I mean, I'm, I call shit right and left, even before Wired. And they get paid to do the shit they do. <laughs> you know, I, I just I get donations, which, you know, speaking of Amazon, uh, let me bring this up quick. <laughs> irony of ironies. Here I am saying how this terrible company. And yet even I often uh, rely on it. I, I did mention the Amazon wish list earlier and that it has been updated. Uh, there is much needed equipment there if you do want to purchase it. If you want to test out your Amazon Echo, uh, go for it, you know, doing it that way. Um <laughs> I mean, some of this stuff, it's the only way you can get some of it. You know, it just, it does make things, uh, you know, very, very easy, but it just goes to show, you know, just how powerful Amazon has become. But in the, you know, to take the positive takeaway from all this is that I do like the fact that Amazon Underground and the Amazon Echo are proving that you need to build things that exist largely outside of the established distribution systems or outside of the established uh, uh, infrastructure you know, infrastructure as in the PC or the smartphone. Yeah, 
you know, in the end, yes. I mean, obviously, it, you know, the Amazon Echo does nothing if it's not connected to a Wi-Fi router. A Wi-Fi router does nothing if it's connected to a computer, blah, 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 blah. But, you know, we're talking more at the consumer level here. And in that case, it's kind of true. Uh, just like, you know, one thing, and in fact, I've heard on, on the same podcast I was listening to, um, they had mentioned how they said that that the Apple Watch is failing because uh, the, the, the podcast is called Exponent, by the way. But they were mentioning how the Apple Watch is failing because nobody wants to wear an additional, nobody really wants to wear an additional device. Like if the watch was completely standalone, it would work. And that's what I've wanted. That's what I've talked about many times on Sovereign Tech, like the LG Watch Urbane second edition LTE I mentioned earlier. I wanted that to come out because that has its own SIM card, has its own phone number, has its own GPS. It can kind of do everything right on there. And I would love if there was a device that could replace the smartphone that was just, you know, the Dick Tracy watch. I think that'd be great. And I think that is coming and it is the future. And the fact that I'm not the only one seeing it now and I'm not just going with flights of fancy. I think it's going to be a reality. So keep an eye out for that. Sooner or later, you might not be carrying a smartphone at all. You're just going to be wearing your watch. I'll be back with more. Time now for 90 Seconds on Sex with Dr. Paul. Between 1800 and 1900, the average number of children that women had decreased from 7 to 3.5, or almost 50%. Now, this is a spectacular decline when you consider there weren't good methods of birth control and condoms weren't in general use. They did know about the rhythm method of birth control in the 1800s, but they seriously miscalculated when a woman was fertile. Women would often douche immediately following intercourse to prevent pregnancy, which was a particular challenge because they didn't have warm water or central heating. The most effective method of pregnancy prevention was probably withdrawal or various diaphragm-like methods. In the 1800s, abortion was a normal part of birth control, and there was even a time when the Catholic Church was okay with abortion if done early. In the 1870s, there were more than 200 full-time abortionists in New York City, whose population was only a small fraction of what it is today. Back then, abortion was often safer than childbirth. The backs of newspapers were filled with cryptically written ads for herbs and folk remedies that would cause a miscarriage. And women would also try to terminate unwanted pregnancies through heavy exercise by jumping, shaking, climbing trees, and taking hot baths. Some women would even attempt to abort by sitting over a pot full of hot stewed onions. For more, visit 90secondsonsex.com. I'm in. That was almost too easy. Easy? More like you're very talented. <laughs> Thank you, Agent Sovereign. I hear you're very talented yourself. Oh, Pixel. Flattery will get you everywhere with me. What do we have? Blockchain transactions, smart contracts, the usual nonsense for my... Wait a minute. What's this? That looks like... Important messages. It is time for Important Messages, where I cover the messages that get sent in to me through the various channels available. Of course, you can go to zog.ninja or sovereigntech.com. There's the Contact Us tab, and you can get in touch with me uh, right there. So anyway, I have I have a bunch of questions I, I want to try and get through here. We'll, we'll see which ones we can. Um, the first one is actually a question about the website, um, and that is there's a tab at zog.ninja or sovereigntech.com. Again, it's all one central hub for everything. There's a tab there that says Anarchy Mud. Now, 
I'm not selling like my magic mud or something. I'm not selling any kind of mud. Uh, what anarchy mud? Somebody was asking me about it, and actually, quite a few people have emailed me asking, "Hey, what is this?" I mean, they they know what it is. They know what mud mud is a, a game style. Uh, in fact, there's a, a classic from back in the '90s that I used to play nonstop over BBS called Exitilis. Uh, it's a, it's a you know kind of a text based dungeon crawler of sorts. And yes, I want to make one. Zomi Offline Games wants to create a mud, uh, and so right now it's called Anarchy Mud. Uh, the question was, would it be PK, a PK mud, which means kind of player versus player? Um, those, yeah, I'm open to to trying that out. Uh, this is something that's that's really in the early stages um, of development. So I and but it is it is going to be a reality. I am making uh, you know a mud a game with that that has you know very real liberty themes or uh, you know within it. Um, it is not part of the Hypercronius universe. Uh, my, my previous games, Hypercronius and Ninja Track both exist within the same universe, even though you could play either one completely on their own, you know, and it, and it doesn't hurt anything. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but Anarchy Mud, you know, that, that is something that I plan on. It will be web-based, uh, at least at first I plan on it being web-based. Uh, so that is something coming down the pike. I appreciate people, uh, asking about that. I have so many projects that I'm doing and I work on each one as often as I can. I mean, I work all the time. <laughs> You know, it's, it's funny. Uh, you know, I live in New Hampshire and I think a lot of people are like, Oh, Hey, you know, you want to hang, you know, you want to hang out. Uh, you know, we got this event going on. You want to come down to it and all this stuff. And, and just like, I don't have the time. I mean, I'm just, I'm trying to, you know, I'm, I'm literally trying so many projects, trying to make ends meet. Of course, just had, uh, you know, audio, of the ancients, we just had the, the newest album from that, uh, come out An Epic of Gilgamesh will be coming out. I'll talk about, uh, the descent of Ishtar EP. You can go grab it. Like I said, audio of the ancients.xyz. Um, you can go grab it there. But uh, I will be doing, you know, I'm going to be doing a lot more in that series. Epic of Gilgamesh will be coming out, but I will be talking about the Descent of Ishtar uh, coming up. So, and keep in mind, I mean, shit, the Descent of Ishtar, <laughs> since it is truly the meaning of Easter, and yes, it is the origin of Easter. It makes for a great Easter present. Uh, and I'll, I'll talk maybe when, when Easter comes around, I will do as I have for the past few years. I will discuss how, because people have tried to debunk that Easter and Ishtar are not related. Easter is a totally Christian concept. Um, and people have tried to debunk that, and I have easily, easily debunked them uh, every single time. And it all comes down to the word papyrus. And the word paper, because that's kind of the argument is that, well, Ishtar can't be Easter because words don't skip uh, cultures or languages. Uh, they don't skip entire generations. So there's no way that Ishtar was used to be the origin of Easter. That's bullshit because papyrus is an Egyptian word. It's Egyptian. And yet we still use it. It is the root of our word paper. Uh, and that's in English. Very to totally not related words. Or, you know, not related languages, uh, but they have affected each other, just as Ishtar is very much the history of Easter. There you go. In short, that's how you debunk anybody that says Easter is not related to Ishtar. It absolutely is. They are full of crap. Uh, but anyway, not not to talk about that forever. Uh, we have another an, another interesting question, um, something and this has to do with the auto update problem. If you don't know what the auto update problem is. Uh, I have in, in, I've started a security consultancy business, uh, Sovereign Tech Solutions. Of course, you can go to Sovereign.Ninja to find that. And Sovereign Tech Solutions, like one of the things, one of the very first things I recommend, and one of the things over Sovereign Tech's history as a whole that I've recommended is update, 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 always update as, you know, almost as quickly as you can. Be very anal about updates. 
And I say that because, you know, there's always major security fixes, you know, all these things that need to get, you know, resolved and that uh, developers, when they roll out an update, usually it's there to fix it. Now, there's a flip side to this. There's a problem with that whole ide- ideology. There's a problem with the, the notion of, of updates themselves. And that is, if anything kind of auto updates, which generally I'd recommend if you have like an Android phone or an iOS phone or whatever, uh, or, you know, device, yeah, set, set stuff for auto update. Now, the problem there is that, and this is coming out of a lot of people are talking about it now because it's coming out of the Apple versus FBI case, which we covered last week, is that if something is set to auto update, whatever gets put into, you don't know what's getting put into those updates often enough. And there could be some very, you know, there could be some malicious code of some kind inside of those updates, or there could be custom firmware that would allow the FBI or some other alphabet soup organization to get access to your device, etc. Okay, so updates are a problem. And even like Windows 10, Windows 10, uh, most versions, I think the home version anyway, forces you uh, to update. You don't have the choice to not update Windows anymore if you're using Windows 10. It forces you to put on the update. Um, Yeah, these are real problems. Uh, you know, I think that that targeting through updates, it's not new. I've talked about on Sovereign Tech before. It's not a new thing to me. Okay, if they're targeting you with updates, I mean, if they're targeting you, and everybody will admit to this. I even heard a, a podcast with Kevin Mitnick recently, and he even said what I've been saying forever, and that I've and I've said at the Dark Android Project. If you are being targeted by the NSA, I mean, just forget it. Like, like if you're re- they're really looking after you, there's not much you can do. Okay, uh, so there is a real trade-off between auto updates, you know, or updates in general, and you know, and and the potential privacy and even you know security infringing aspects of that. But then the, you know, also very real security problems of not updating at all. And I, I think that the, the, you know, the trade-off, the lesser of two evils, perhaps, even though updating things shouldn't be evil at all. But since we have governments, well, there you go. Um, but I, I think it's much safer to update than to not. Uh, I, I really, and certainly, like, if you're not going to update You know, a lot of these updates, especially for operating systems and all that, a lot of those updates are to plug security holes, like perhaps even at the operating system level. Okay, first off, you probably want to get the updates from the company that made the operating system. You would think that they'd know better than anybody how to go about that. Okay, that's just, you know, a degree of common sense. Uh, But second off with, you know, with 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 the updates is that if you're not going to do that, then you probably unless you're a very careful person, uh, you probably want to run some kind of anti malware or antivirus software of some kind. But I <laughs> I would like you to trust me on this, that anti malware and antivirus software largely now is a sham. And if anything, it is far more dangerous than any update you'll get from any major company, uh, you know, at, especially at the operating system level. Uh, I just, I don't, I don't believe in those things anymore. I don't recommend it to people uh, anymore. The, you know, the way things are patched today, the way the update cycle works today, that, you know, anti-malware, antivirus, you know, and all that is, is largely pointless in my opinion. Um, so it's really just about, you know, what's safer. Uh, I think it's safer to update than it is to not. But there are caveats. There are dangers with especially with doing auto updates, uh, certainly. 
So keep that in mind. But if you're looking to, you know, avoid uh, the NSA and and whatever other kind of groups, well, head to darkandroid.info and you can learn about how to actually do that because anonymity is just as much, uh, you know, personal anonymity to some degree is just as important as any kind of security uh, platform or layout that you're doing on your various devices. Uh, so anyway, I, I hope that answers that. I'm just saying updating is safer than not. Okay, uh, you know, and and again, if you're being targeted, well, you're screwed anyway. Uh, let's see. Here, here's an interesting. Uh, here's a very, very interesting email that I want to read. Because you know, a, a lot of people are really they're really shocked um, by my stance on guns, because as I do describe as a libertarian, left libertarian, anarchist, whatever, you know, there's a bunch of different terms. I think we might talk terms a little bit later. Uh, most people in that realm, in liberty circles or the liberty movement as a whole, uh, are very, you know, yeah, pro-gun, you better own a gun. A polite society is, uh, you know, a polite society is an armed society or an armed society is a polite society, blah, blah, blah. Uh, you know, all, all this. You need to be able to defend yourself and all this shit. And while I have no problem whatsoever with, A, owning property, uh, you know, possessions, or B, defending yourself. I support both. Um, I am not a fan of guns. I don't like guns. I think guns are antithetical to their purpose. Again, we're not talking about hunting. We're talking about, you know, guns as a, as a means of defense. Um, I am infamous, notorious for holding that stance. I wouldn't ban anything. I'm not going to ban your guns. I'm not going to go for any legislation. I hope you've heard this whole episode. I don't believe in, in laws. Okay. Or in enacting them. Uh, but yeah, I, I have, uh, you know, I have a very anti-gun stance. So anyway, I want to read this, uh, this email from a, from a listener is really, really gracious. Uh, hello. It's kind of a surprise to me that I have really never heard your views on guns before anywhere. I used to just gravitate towards the super pro gun crowds views over the anti gun, uh, gun ban everything crowd, but admittedly had some doubts about the whole quote in armed society is a polite society end quote mentality and never sat right with me. Like you have said, that is a society of fear and, and stallion breaking in here. Uh, yeah, that is my point is that an armed society is a society of fear. You're only being nice because you're afraid your face is going to get blown off. And how pathetic is that? That's not really a free society. Uh, reading on, but I just hung on to it, meaning the, you know, the pro-gun, uh, don't ban anything. Uh, but I, I just hung on to it because I thought it was the best liberty stance to have on the issue. You helped me see it a different way. Anyway, when you have, when you say one reason you started Sovereign Tech was because you were not hearing some of your views out there, well, you don't need to tell me that you're right about that. I wonder if I might have gotten myself a gun by now had I not heard your show. I was definitely considering it, though now want nothing to do with them. Not counting in video games, and I'm with you there. <laughs> uh, but I can appreciate a good game with something to say on the issue as well. That's all. Thanks, man. And, of course, I'd leave people's names anonymous unless they want me to uh, to mention them. Yeah, I really appreciate that, getting that email. And I wanted to read it because most of the emails I get are just calling, you know, whenever I talk about guns and like the position I have against guns, uh, that I don't like the idea of things designed to take other human life. And that I think that there's a mass psychological, uh, problem with that, that that creates, because it does create a society of fear instead of a society of freedom, instead of a genuinely polite society, polite as in it respects personhood. Uh, I, I usually just get called nuts, you know, and I give alternatives. I'm not against self-defense. I'm not technically a pacifist 
Okay. I just don't agree with the taking of human life. I've done it too much myself. I, I'm a veteran. I would, you know, I was, I was in the U S army for, well, anyway. Uh, and so I, you know, I really, I, I was honored to get that email and I wanted to talk about it. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I wanted to at least, you know, bring it up that I, thankfully I'm not insane. Because that's that's usually what I get whenever I bring up. I, I can't remember what episode was the last one that I brought up the gun subject uh, completely. And in fact, the last time I brought it up was because another Sovereign Tech listener had made a very, very great case as to, you know, how insane it is that most of the people that are all, yeah, give me a gun, let's own guns, have never done stress shooting. Uh, you know, stress shooting meaning where there's moving targets or you're moving as well. They've just been on a gun range and somehow they think they're fucking cool for that. And that's that's what a lot of this comes down to. I mean, there's just there's, there's so much insecurity with people. Uh, so I'm all for self-defense. Krav Maga, I think that's wonderful. Uh, I'm a practitioner myself. Uh, I mean, and, and in fact, at Porkfest last year, um, there was a guy teaching Krav. I thought that was great. You know, uh, not everything about Porkfest is <laughs> I got kind of corrected about that. I talked about Porkfest last week. Yes, not everything is about drugs, you know, and and I can certainly appreciate sitting around a bonfire as long as like that's not the basis of it. Right. But yeah, I think people think that, you know, we can't get past the fact that other humans are going to want to hurt us. But I mean, what the fuck? That's like saying a tadpole never becomes, a, you know, a frog. We're just going to say tadpoles our whole goddamn lives. That's just stupid. We can evolve out of this. Thanks, emailer. Are you sick of government lackeys who say you didn't build that? Are you tired of elitists who think you need a government permission slip for everything? Everything you do is an A to B conversation and the government should see their way out of it. Create true free markets by adopting the BIPCOT No Government License. The BIPCOT NoGov license allows user modification of any product, service, or software except by governments or government agents. Go to BIPCOT.org. That's Bravo, India, Papa, Charlie, Oscar, Tango.org. Did you get all the data? I got all of it. It's finished once we get this uploaded. That's if we can get away from those blockchain drones in time. Don't worry, I've got it covered. Over here. I love a woman with a motorcycle. Get on. A bike is always my first choice. It is time for First Choice, where I cover the stories that get sent in to me. Uh, this is your chance to take over the show, along with important messages, of course. And, you know, in fact, something that got sent to me <laughs> on the SoundCloud page for Sovereign Tech, you can comment right on the episodes, and there's been great comments. I definitely recommend people read those uh, because there's always some interesting insights there. And someone actually cracked a joke saying that the character of Pixel. Uh, maybe a double agent. <laughs> it was so good. I'll cover it in another episode of Sovereign Tech. I thought it was funny. And, the, and they were pretty much saying, Agent Sovereign, you got to stop thinking with your dick. <laughs> it was really funny. And like one of the points was, it's like, how does Pixel just have a motorcycle there? You know, and obviously they're they being humorous. But uh, but that was that was a, a really good. Uh, <laughs> it was great. Anyway, um, this week, what I want to what I want to talk about here uh, or what got sent into me and I want to talk about now, granted, the story I'm going to cover here comes from uh, from ancientorigins.net. It's ancient origins.net. Now, sometimes with this website pedals is questionable 
uh, you know, as to its validity. Okay. They, they get into kind of the ancient alien stuff. And as sovereign tech listeners know, uh, I don't buy into the idea that aliens have ever been to earth. I don't buy into the idea that aliens have ever done much of anything. Uh, Fermi paradox. There you go. Uh, so anyway, this story is disbelieve it or not. Ancient history suggests that atheism is as natural to humans as religion. And this is important to bring up. Again, Sovereign Tech is a show about science and technology, not just tech. Uh, and so this is going to get into the scientific realm. And it's been a while since I've talked about my atheism on the show. Uh, and I am an atheist. Uh, I mean, I, as, as atheist as they come. Uh, so I thought it'd be good you know, to kind of to bring this up. Let's read the story. Uh, People in the ancient world did not always believe in the gods. A new study suggests casting doubt on the idea that religious belief is a quote unquote default setting for human uh, for humans. And this is a really important point to bring up quick stallion breaking in Uh, there. Now, again, this this article is based upon a book, so it's not really like ancient origins, you know, independent research, which I suppose could be questionable. Uh, but the book is, I'll mention it's battling the gods. I'll mention it more later, uh, but it's a tremendous read. Uh, but the point is, is that right now there is a lot of science that people like to claim a lot of religious people and even not religious people that somehow like spirituality and, you know, religious belief is some kind of a default in, in human, in the human condition. But this book battling of the gods says quite the opposite. Let's read on quote. Early societies were far more capable than many since of containing atheism within the spectrum of what they considered normal. And that's a quote from uh, from Tim Whitmarsh. Despite being written out of large parts of history, atheists thrived in the polytheistic societies of the ancient world, raising considerable doubts about whether humans are really are wired for religion. A new study suggests the claim is the central proposition of a new book by Tim Whitmarsh, uh, professor of Greek culture and fellow of St. John's College, University of Cambridge. In it, he suggests that atheism, which is typically seen as a modern phenomenon, was not just common in ancient Greece and pre-Christian Rome, but probably flourished more in those societies than in most civilizations since. As a result, the study challenges two assumptions that prop up current debates between atheists and believers. Firstly, the idea that atheism is a modern point of view. And second, the idea of quote unquote, religious universalism, that humans are naturally predisposed or quote unquote, wired to believe in gods. The book entitled battling of the gods or battling the gods is being launched in Cambridge on, on uh, this, this came out like in February. Uh, and here's a quote from it. We tend to see atheism as an idea that has only recently emerged in secular Western societies. The rhetoric used to describe it is hypermodern. In fact, early, in fact, early societies were far more capable than many since of containing atheism within the spectrum of what they considered normal. Rather than making judgment based judgments based on scientific reason, these early atheists were making what seemed to be universal objections about the paradoxical nature of religion. The fact that it asks you to accept things that aren't intuitively there in your world. The fact that this was happening thousands of years ago suggests that uh, forms of disbelief can exist in all cultures and probably always have. End quote. That's Tim Whitmarsh. The book argues that disbelief is actually as old as the hills. Early examples, such as the atheistic writings of uh, Xenophanes of Caliphon, are contemporary with Second Temple era Judaism and significantly predate Christianity and Islam. Uh, even even Plato, writing in the fourth century BCE, said that contemporary non-believers were quote not the first to have held this view about the gods end quote. Uh, 
because atheism's ancient history has largely gone unwritten, again, history is written by the victors, right? Breaking in. And the victors were Christianity about 2,000 years ago. Uh, Whitmarsh suggests that it is also absent from both sides of the current monothe monotheist slash atheist debate. While atheists depict religion as something from an earlier, more primitive stage of human development, the idea of religious universalism is also built partly on the notion that early societies were religious by nature because to believe in God is an inherent, quote, default setting for humans, end quote. Neither perspective is true, Whitmarsh suggests. Quote, believers talk about atheism as if it's a uh, pathology of a particular, uh, particularly odd phrase of modern Western culture that will pass. But if you ask someone to think hard, clearly people also thought this way in antiquity, end quote. His book surveys 1,000 years of ancient history to prove the point, teasing out the various forms of disbelief expressed by philosophical movements, writers, and public figures. These were made possible in particular by the fundamental diversity of polytheistic Greek societies. Between 650 and 323 BCE, Greece had an estimated 1,200 separate city-states, each with its own customs, traditions, and governance. Religion expressed this variety as a matter of private cults, village rituals, and city festivals dedicated to numerous uh, divine entities. This meant that there was no such thing as religious orthodoxy. The closest the Greeks got to a unifying sacred text were Homer's epics, which offered no coherent moral vision of the gods and indeed often portrayed them as immoral. Uh, stallion breaking in that that's similar to, you know, Homer's epics. You could consider them the Star Wars of their day. Everybody watched them. Everybody knew about them. But you know, they, they weren't like Orthodox to life. Right. <laughs> uh, similarly, there was no specialized clergy telling people how to live. Quote, the idea of a priest telling you what to do was alien to the Greek world. End quote, Whitmarsh said. As a result, while some people viewed atheism as mistaken, it was rarely seen as morally wrong. In fact, it was usually tolerated as one of a number of viewpoints that people could adopt on the subject of the gods. Only occasionally was it actively legislated against, such as in Athens during the 5th century BCE, when Socrates was executed for not recognizing the gods of the city. So definitely, but th this is the point, is that you didn't have, you know, there wasn't like this one unifying real Greek culture. This is a really important thing, uh, you know, to understand when it comes to that. There was... You know, it was polytheistic. There was a bunch of different belief systems and there was a bunch of different city states and everybody could kind of live in their own way. And some of them were drastically different. You know, Sparta was very different from Athens in very real ways. Uh, you know, all of these different things that, that, that allow for that. And what's amazing is that 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 system, that decentralized system of living, which which ancient Greece was. And this is Stanley you're talking to. It was considered a real prize. And a lot of people, I don't buy into the metrics of Western civilization, but people consider all that the foundation of Western civilization. And so clearly not having one government and one way is how you actually get to incredible ideas and how you allow for thriving. Now, I want to read on a little bit more, and then I, I have more to say on the subject. But here's more of the article. While atheism came in various shapes and sizes, Whitmarsh also argues that there were strong continuities across the generations. Ancient atheists struggled with fundamentals that many people still question today, such as how to deal with the problem of evil and how to explain aspects of religion which seem implausible. These themes extend from the work of early thinkers, like Animax, uh, Anaximander, <laughs> I'm going to pronounce these names terrible, uh, and uh, Animax. 
Anaximenes, there we go, who tried to explain why phenomena such as thunder and earthquakes actually had nothing to do with the gods. Uh, though to famous writers like Euripides, these whose plays openly criticized uh, divine causality. Perhaps the most famous group of atheists in the ancient world, who I was going to bring up anyway, the Epicureans, <laughs> argued that there was no such thing as predestination and rejected the idea that the gods had any control over human life. The age of ancient atheism ended, Whitmar suggests, because the polytheistic societies that generally tolerated it were replaced by monotheistic imperial forces that demanded an acceptance of one true God. Rome's adoption of Christianity in the 4th century CE was, he says, seismic, because it used religious absolutism to hold the empire together. Most of the later Roman Empire's ideological energy was expended fighting supposedly heretical beliefs, often other forms of Christianity. In a decree of 380 CE, Emperor Theodosius I even drew a distinction between Catholics and everyone else, whom he classed as uh, Dementes Vesnosc, uh, demented lunatics. Maybe I pronounced that wrong. Such rulings left no room for disbelief. Whitmar stresses that this study is not designed to prove or disprove the truth of atheism itself. On the book's first page, however, he adds, quote, I do, however, have a strong conviction that has hardened in the course of researching and writing this book that cultural and religious pluralism and free debate are indispensable to the good life. And I agree with this. I, I, I agree with the sentiment. I mean, I'm an atheist. I think religion is in many ways nonsense. I don't. You know, I have a lot of Christian listeners to the show. I have Jewish listeners of the show. I have Muslim listeners of Sovereign Tech. And I have plenty of other religions outside of the Abrahamic trio, okay, that listen to the show. So clearly you don't mind if I speak my mind. And that's why I do the show. I've already said that. So there it is. But the idea that cultural pluralism is what allows, is, is the foundation of great, you know, of, of great thought of advancing thought, not to say that the Greeks were that great, but sure. Yes, of course it is. And it's ironic because you have, you have a lot of people today that are concerned oh, about the Syrians or they're concerned about the Mexicans or they're concerned about this. And it's all under this, they're going to destroy our culture. And it's like, wait a second. What? Multiculturalism is what allows you to even advance in thought in the first place. And in many ways, it really is. Um, and it's ironic. It's really ironic. Uh, I find this interesting that atheism, because this does stand so counterintuitive. I mean, I knew atheism existed in the ancient world. I'm an Epicurean myself. I know. <laughs> and Epicurus was effectively an atheist. He didn't believe there was no afterlife. There was none of that bullshit. But the, the, you know, the average story does go that, oh, no, atheism is a modern construct. Uh, this is all, you know, part of Satan's plan or that, uh, you know, that atheism didn't exist back in the day and everybody was religious and it's all default. No, it's not true, folks. Now there's actual studies being done. There's a lot of research being done, research that's finally allowed to happen because of multiculturalism, because not everybody's a goddamn Christian. We can actually look at ancient texts again without the Christian eyeglasses on. And we can realize, oh, wait a second. Plato said that there's lots of people that didn't believe in God back in the day. Without multiculturalism, you end up with another system of control. Okay, whether it's religious or not, it may not be religious. 
but this is important. Atheism is absolutely natural. I've, I've you know, I've brought this up so many times. Uh, I don't know. In, I mean, in my best guess is mushrooms, like ingesting mushrooms. I don't know how, you know, ancient humans, paleolithic humans, whatever, went from, you know, went from their normal existence to somehow believing in gods or a god. I don't know how that happened. People want to say it's animism. I don't buy it. The idea that they think everything's alive. Uh, I always say it, and, and there's a lot of evidence for this, is that ancient humans you know, like cavemen and all that stuff. They had, they they so relied on their senses for survivability alone. It was so key. They could not afford and they could not take the time necessarily to believe that in, in some kind of ethereal nonsense, they were absolutely hyper aware of their surroundings. There is no good reason they would believe that a rock or a stone is alive. And thus you would have animism and then animism, you know, turns into religions from there on. I don't buy that whole evolution of religion. I think that's crap. I think humans are born atheists. They're naturally atheists. And the only thing I could figure is some human somewhere thousands and thousands of years ago ate a mushroom and had some kind of wild experience, started seeing a bunch of different colors. They broke from reality. They broke from reality. And, and then, then, then suddenly, you know, like a priesthood started or, you know, some kind of, I don't know, he told a wild story. And so he became, you know, some caveman became very popular for telling some kind of wild story. I mean, that's, that's just, that's how I see it. And I'm so glad that this, this study, this evidence is now being brought to light that no, that atheism is as natural as it comes. It's fascinating, fascinating stuff. And, you know, some people may ask the question, well, you know, can you disprove that there's a God? Isaac Asimov couldn't even disprove there was a God. Actually, yeah, I kind of can, because now there's even studies that say there was no beginning, scientific studies, that there was no beginning to the universe. So thus, there's no creator if there's no beginning. But then that also means there's no end. How about that for science, baby? Woo! Got an energy spike. Launch. In the third age of mankind, an age plagued by an evil empire that seeks to destroy humanity, it is our last, best hope for peace. It is Babylon 5. All fighter squadrons launched. Return fire. Well, free them. Free them. Watch Babylon 5. Babylon 5 is available for download on your favorite torrent site. See it now to experience the greatest show in television history. Babylon 5. Excellent Agent Sovereign. Welcome to Unimatrix Zero. Thanks, computer. So, Brian, looks like we have the whole place to ourselves. We do, actually. Did you have something in mind to do? Well, this is virtual reality. I thought maybe we could. Pixel, you look. I love VR. Come here, Brian. Mm. 
for the climax, where I can talk about whatever the hell I want to talk about. Could be a movie, could be a TV show, could be, uh, you know, a book, could be anything. <laughs> Which you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna drop a couple things on you quick before I get into the subject that I want to I want to discuss, and I'm gonna be very brief on the subject, but it's an important one that is uh, kind of a conversation starter, I think. Uh, so I'm, I may not end up with a complete conclusion on the matter here. Um, but before I get into that, I do want to say uh, there's a new show on ABC. I know ABC, but of gods or, or of kings and prophets, it's called. And it's all about the time of Samuel and Saul and David and all that stuff. Uh, I watched the first episode. It just aired this week. It, I thought it was great. Uh, really, really enjoyed that. Uh, you know, we'll we'll see how subsequent episodes come, but uh, the first episode I thought kind of knocked it out of the park. And hopefully, it's actually made by a guy that I, I used to hang with, Chris Brancato, uh, who created the great Sci-Fi Channel show First Wave. Um, he he knows how to make things sexy, and I think he's going to bring the show to that level, even on ABC. And maybe they'll release uncensored version, release uncensored versions of the episodes um, in the future. But that was great. Uh, another thing, boy, there's been some tremendous music that is uh, that has come out in the past few weeks uh helion prime phenomenal opening album with the same name helion prime there's a new band called or not a new band they've been around since the aughts uh but uh eclipse they had a new album called called armageddonize insane incredibly intense really really good and on the comic book front uh a, a company oh now i can't think of the american gnostic press maybe it's not gnostic they they started a new lost in space comic book uh, and it is phenomenal. It's based off of a script, uh, by original script writers from the original Lost in Space show back in the seventies. I'm a big fan. Uh, that was really, it, it was really, really well done what they did with that. So lots, lots of content for you to check out there. Maybe I could, you know, do, do need to do full reviews on them. And of course, last week I covered uh, Gods of Egypt, which I thought I really enjoyed the movie. I thought it was great. Uh, I recognize it's not for everybody, but I mean, the score, Marco Beltrami just knocked it out of the park. That's fantastic. You really got that sense of ancient Egypt. And like I said, if you want to get a sense of the ancient world, too, of course, don't hesitate <laughs> to buy a copy of the Descent of Ishtar EP that I just released. All original music. I'm even performing the female characters having a great time. So do check that out if you're looking for something new to listen to. Uh, you can just go to audiotheancients.xyz or you can go to zog.ninja you'll you'll find it there zog.ninja uh anyway this week i kind of have a, a mini topic uh that i want to that i want to broach with you break into with you uh because it's um it has at least for me it has some personal ramifications uh and i was listening to oh i, I forget what show i was listening to but they may they mentioned a term it was a show about torrents so maybe it was steal the show i think that's the name of it. it's from torrent freak um, and the show, the, 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 the phrase that they mentioned was permission based culture. And I thought that was so stunning. And obviously they're talking about torrents and all that. So that, you know, it makes sense within their meaning, but permission based culture. And I was just listening to that. And I'm like, yeah, that's the antithesis or that that's the better descriptor, I think of domination culture. This like this idea, you know, but permission based culture that you to do something, you need to get permission first, which is in many ways anti-freedom. I mean, if you're dealing with, you know, if you're having a human to human interaction, uh, obviously you don't want to infringe on that other person's personhood then yes, you need permission or you can accept the consequences uh, or you want to get permission. But, but permission-based culture in the abstract is such a beautiful term, uh, pejorative term. And I, I do plan on using it uh, a lot more, but it raised, you know, someone, um, when I mentioned this, actually a, a good friend and a, a guy I just really, really appreciate, uh, Zeke Woods. 
he 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 said it was perfectly fine to mention his name. Um, he he shared this this thought with me because when I mentioned that I really you know enjoyed the term permission based culture, he said, "Wait, do you mean to tell me that you're one of those anarchists who actually opposes archism and not just statism?" And archism means, you know, authority means authoritarian, like effectively archism is still authoritarian. And you'll understand what I mean in just a second. The widespread pejorative use of the word statist, quote unquote, has been a pet peeve of mine. This is Zeke talking ever since I read The Dispossessed, great book by Ursula K. Le Guin. It seems more linguistically pure for an anarchist to want to disparage archists instead the fact that almost no one does says something. I'd be happy if a lot of self-described anarchists would start referring to themselves as anti-status or contra-status or something else that more directly reflects their scope of concern and raison d'etre. Uh, raison d'etre, right? Is that how you pronounce that? Anyway, the point is that I was making and that I've made many that I've been making for a while on Sovereign Tech is that. There are clearly, and you can go back to like episode 102, there's a bunch of different ones where I talked about this, where clearly there are quote unquote anarchists or voluntarists or libertarians who, yes, they are anti-state, they are anti-government, but they're not really anti-authority. They just want to be the authority or they want more control of who's an authority, however that, that ends up shaping up. And that's where the word archist comes in. And, you know, there's a funny term and I th- and there, there's a funny phrase that I think needs to go completely away. And that is you don't want to call yourself something that you're against. Like there's a, like an NVC, nonviolent communication. Uh, even I think Marshall Rosenberg even said, yeah, it's unfortunate I had to call it nonviolent because I'm bringing up violence. Uh, you know, I, I would much rather call it peaceful communication or something like that. Like that, that was that was kind of the gist. And some people have said that you want to in your name, what you call yourself. You want to talk about what you're for, and not what you're against. Uh, I I totally disagree with this bullshit. I, I, I do. And I've and I always kind of have uh, have thought that that's that's not a good idea because there's no clarity then in in what you call yourself. There's no clarity in which in what you're expressing to another person. The person of language is to get them to understand what you're saying in many ways or to transmit information. Well, there's not a lot of clarity in the transmission of information here. When you just say you're an anarchist, because clearly there's a lot of people that still believe in authority. You know, I mean, there's there's anarchists who still think that there should be some kind of copyright law. That's insane. Uh, You have to have a surveillance state to enforce copyright. There's no point to copyright. Uh, You know, there's there's a whole bunch of of other other options where, you know, like like people want to run their own security forces and all this stuff. They pretty much want to run private armies. And do you think that those private armies are eventually going to turn into like, you know, Hatfield and McCoy's at some point? Absolutely. So, I, you know, there really like there is there needs to be a clearer distinction uh, between, you know, what is anti-authority and what is just really just anti-state. What is really just, well, they won't let me use drugs. So, uh, yeah, so I'm a libertarian uh, as to where, you know, and, and look, yeah, I'm just going to be fucking brash with it. I don't think there'd be a tenth of the amount of libertarians and uh, and and anarchists. If marijuana was was largely legal and if like, you know, whatever other drug heroin's popular now, I guess, again, uh, you know, if those things were were decriminalized. I don't think most I think most people would be like, yeah, do whatever you want in the White House. We don't give a shit. Really? I really do. And, and I challenge you. I mean, to, to really think about that. And I'm not knocking drugs. Drugs are whatever. Do your thing. I'm just saying. 
Uh, so this is this is a, a, a real issue, and in fact, I think I'm I'm going to go into a touch of overtime just just a, just a couple minutes, just because I want to talk about this a little bit more. So affiliates, I, I am I am going into overtime, just so you know, just a few minutes. Um, I I get to, you know actually the most common used term in my sphere of influence and in, in my circles is voluntarist. Okay, now I am hard pressed to find. Any voluntarist anywhere, and it's not just a geographic thing, that doesn't vote. When Carl Watner created the term voluntarist, he made it very clear. It's one of the precepts of that term is it means no voting. Now, there, therein lies the problem. Kind of like Zeke was saying, how there should be contrastatus or anti-status or, uh, you know, whatever. Like, like the anti-status would be more accurate of what some people think because they're really not anti-authority. They're just anti-status. I mean, they still want to beat their kid's ass, disgustingly. Um, but they're against the government, right? So, yeah. So you get my point is that they're still for authority. Um, th- this is a problem. Voluntarist, you know, you would think the word voluntary makes it very clear that you cannot impose your will on other people, which is what voting effectively is. Uh, but apparently it's not clear enough. And, and that's a problem. But I mean, most, most voluntarists I know today, they vote, they run for office. What the fuck? <laughs> Somebody get Carl Watner on the goddamn phone. Uh, no, yeah, call Carl right now because I want him, the guy that invented the goddamn word. I want him to tell you what it means. But anyway, there's people that are into it. And fine, whatever. You do what you do. Okay, I don't want to control you. We were talking about multiculturalism earlier. Do, do what you fucking do as long as you leave me the fuck alone. Okay. But there is a problem in terms here. These words have very open-ended meanings. And, you know, you don't want to turn into, I don't know, what, what's that really long I've heard people use? I am an anti-disciplined, disestablishmentarianist, abolitionist, or some kind of bullshit. I mean, like, you could end up having to, you know, use, uh, like, the name of the shadows is 10,000 characters long. So to describe yourself, you'd have to use something that's 10,000 characters long, like the shadows. I mean, it's just a Babylon 5 reference there. Um that's madness. But we do really have a problem with, you know, especially in our interconnected world where we're trying in so many ways of shorthand to describe to people, you know, what our ideologies are. You know, and I just we as in like you as an individual, and I assume that you're at least liberty leaning if you listen to the show somewhat, um, even though that's not the central focus of the show. And of course, climax, I can talk about whatever I want, but. There needs, I, I really think there might need to be a, a very new term and somehow it's got to be so fucking clear that no, this isn't just anti-state. This isn't anti-government. This is anti-fucking authority. No authority whatsoever. ever. Not everybody wants that kind of system. Fine. You don't. Okay. But the problem is, is that for me personally, the word anarchist doesn't seem to cut it anymore. The word voluntarist sure as hell doesn't cut it. The word libertarian, well, that that's a mess in and all in and of itself. Uh, that's long been known that 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 word is kind of an issue. And I'm not sure what term I want to use. I'm not sure what what term would fit. I've said, I mean, this isn't necessarily new. I've said many times that you know when you talk about language, uh, and I'm a bit of a dilettante in the areas of language. You know, the, the, I think there's words for things that we don't, you know, that we need to start inventing because we don't actually have good descriptors for them. 
you know, now that we're, you know, mentally like really getting ahead of the game in, in many ways and, and, you know, with so many phenomenal philosophies being laid out, uh, there's, there's some terms that just don't gel, that just don't fit yet. We need some new words. And maybe there needs to be a, you know, a new descriptor. I don't want to start a new fucking ideology. I don't want to do that crap. I am so against, so against that, but I don't know how, you know, I don't know what to do about anarchists that a believe in violence, you know, believe that violence is, is, is valid or lethal force is valid. I don't know, you know, what to do about that. That doesn't represent me. And I mentioned earlier, I mean, in this show, like, how do I get across that? I am not interested in killing another human being, you know, but when I use the word libertarian or anarchist or whatever, people almost instant, it's true. A lot of people do think violence or especially with libertarians, they think guns, man, I don't give a shit about guns. I give a shit about, you know, property, but not guns, you know, in, 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 in particular, So I think it might be time for the usage of some new words. Um, I've I've engaged in that from time to time on Sovereign Tech. Uh, I mean, I can even crack the joke that really the Earth should be called ocean, right? Arthur C. Clarke <laughs> said, "Why would why would a planet only covered with a you know uh, a third of land be called Earth? It should be called ocean." <laughs> but I'm I'm just being funny there. Anyway. It's food for thought. You can share your thoughts with me. It's something I'm definitely uh, wrestling with. What term really describes you? Without getting too crazy. Anyway, donate to the show if you love it. Carpe Lucem, everybody. Go grab the Descent of Ishtar. Woo! Audio of the Ancients. experienced Sovereign Tech. Go to SovereignTech.com. That's S-O-V-R-Y-N Tech.com. And connect with us there. Find links from today's show and catch our podcast feed. Sovereign Tech is copy heart. Copying art is an act of love, and love is not subject to law. So please, share the show however you like. Welcome to the Evolution. Evolution.